Welcome to episode 36 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. We're going to be talking about Shakespeare's Neighbours, opera in a circus tent, and a fantastic new digital art project today. And if you're not on board with getting digital, all will become clear later when we talk to you about the VOV. But first, our thanks to all our listeners who wished us a happy birthday and congratulated us on our 35th podcast last week. Actually, it was our 45th podcast because we did 10 earlier podcasts as lockdown culture, so we're even older than you think. So we've been celebrating by raising a glass of delicious Martin Miller's gin. The gin we're absolutely loving at the moment is Martin Miller's Summerfall. It's the perfect gin for an al fresco dry martini or gin and tonic, and it really is the most delicious and refreshing pick-me-up. Yes, it really is lovely. Now, Summerfield has rosemary in it, but its really cunning ingredient is Arctic thyme, which gives it a little floral twist. As I was saying last week, I don't like gins that are too flavoured, but this one isn't. It's simply summery and absolutely gorgeous. It's intensely fresh and good enough to make you feel you're sitting in a field of summer wildflowers. Well, you're making me very thirsty, Charlotte, so let's get on with the podcast. But if you want to find out more about Martin Miller's gin, and I genuinely do love it, I'm very pleased that they're now sponsoring us because it means I get to drink it and you want to bag your bottle of Summerfield go to martinmillersgin.com it won't have escaped the attention of Shakespeare fans that April or in fact St George's Day was not just Shakespeare's 457th birthday but also the month he died in fact I think he died on the same day as his birthday to celebrate him there's a new book by Jeff Marsh which came out you'll be amazed to hear this on Shakespeare's birthday now this is Jeff's first Book because Jeff actually works for the VA where he's co-curated some fantastically successful exhibitions, including, of course, the mega David Ballet, a uh, David Bowie, sorry, the Ballet Russe. That's why I made my verbal slippage there. And you say you want a revolution show. It's quite a feat to have written a 480-page, meticulously researched and beautifully illustrated book in his spare time. And he's here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. And it's great to have you with us. Now, earlier today, you described your book to me as a polo. <laughs> because as anyone who loves Shakespeare realises, it's very hard to find any concrete fact about the man himself. But what you've done is given us a hugely detailed portrait of the world around him. During the time he was 34 years old and living in the parish of St Helens Bishop's Gate, right by what's now the Gherkin. So you've effectively built up an accurate historical account around the mysterious hole in the middle. Tell us what your starting point was. Well, the the starting point was really that in the uh, National Archive, there's a, a tax record from 1598 from St. Helens, the parish of St. Helens, listing all the people who were charged uh, an extra tax. These are the wealthier people in the parish called a lay subsidy. And this was money that was raised when Queen Elizabeth didn't have an, enough from her normal sources of income. So it's used for things like fighting the wars in Ireland and so forth. And what got me interested was all the names on either side. So Shakespeare's listed along with 40 other parishioners and 15 what were called strangers. These would be immigrants, mostly French and Dutch, uh, who were escaping the, uh, the, the terrible war uh, between the Spanish and the Dutch uh, across the Low Countries. And um, I kind of started looking at these names and wondered who these people were. And no one ever seems to have done any research on this. And so that's where I started. And what I uh, attempted to do was... Uh, create as far as possible the entire parish. So from other sources, uh, one knows there were probably 100, 110, 120 families living uh, in the parish. And um, yeah, Shakespeare was in the top quarter, uh, age 34. So it also shows that he was a young, successful 
a playwright. He was the sort of, um, I don't know, Sam Mendes of his day. So he was already doing well even before the tragedies. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, in theory, Shakespeare could have chosen to live anywhere in the city. And um, so... Obviously, the question is what attracted to, to him to this particular parish. It's difficult to think of a modern day anal- analogy because obviously very few people live in the city. I, I think kind of Notting Hill Gate's quite a good analogy in kind of modern London. It was full yeah, of, very, sort of very... That sort of Charlotte Metcalf territory. I, I wish. Imagine, I can imagine. <laughs> it, 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 exactly. It was full of, obviously, there weren't bankers in the sense that we have them today, but there were rich international traders who acted as bankers. Um, but there were also, uh, interestingly enough, five or six musicians living in the parish, including Thomas Morley, the composer, and in fact, music publisher. So it was a, it was a kind of mixed, kind of quite an interesting mixed world, but um, definitely wealthy, definitely aspirational. And what's interesting is that St. Helen's Church, which you can still visit, it's um, one of the only half dozen medieval churches which has survived in the city from the hundred or so that there were originally. At the at the Reformation, the nunnery of St Helens was closed down and the site was sold to the company of leather sellers, which is one of the one of the medieval guilds. And quite extraordinarily the leather sellers still own exactly the same site, three acres of, of the City of London today. And um, uh, I ended up going to their, their archives and amazingly enough, in St Helens, on the same site as they've been for you know, hundreds of years, they have the records of all their tenants going back to 1552. So for about a, a third of the parish, you can see all the people who live there, many of whom appear in these tax lists. And interestingly enough, tenants of the leather sellers appear on either side of Shakespeare's name, which is kind of interesting because there's evidence from other parishes, including the next door parish in the city, that when these tax collectors went round, they literally went door to door. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it. And therefore, it seems highly likely that the same thing happened in St. Helens. And therefore, what one's looking at is this in these listings is the order in which people, uh, the tax collectors went around. And therefore, uh, Shakespeare was possibly either a lodger in a, in a property owned by the leather sellers or living, living very close by. And of course, famously, uh, Shakespeare didn't pay his tax. Next to his name, it says <laughs> Aphid, which means he didn't, didn't pay it, which has often been taken that he was a, a tax dodger. But in fact, it's much more likely this was the time that he bought his large house in, um, in Stratford. And in fact, you could pay your tax wherever you wanted. And a lot of the people, this is one of the other interesting things that's come out of, a lot of the people in St. Helens were paying their taxes elsewhere. I love, all I love this, it. So it this, shows how yeah. little difference there is between then <laughs> exactly. and now. Taxing exactly. the rich, immigration, <laughs> country houses, Notting Hill set, the whole work. <laughs> well, abs- absolutely. And, it, and it, it's it's quite interesting because the um, you, you can look at some of the people, including the clerk of the leather sellers at the time, who was who was actually getting his tithe, which is the tithe paid to the church, uh, reduced by paying an upfront fee uh, when he took on a new lease. So people were very adept at manipulating their tax returns, not to put too fine a point on it. I think as well, what's fascinating about this book is that perhaps we're now able to trace where some of Shakespeare's ideas and influences came from, because, you know, we all wonder how he came to know so much about Italy, for example. And didn't you say he lived next door or nearby to a doctor who trained there? Yeah, I mean, one of the fascinating things about the parish was that um, uh, there were at least three, possibly four doctors, which I can tell you was a large concentration in Elizabethan London. And two of them, Dr Peter Turner and Dr Edward Jordan, uh, were what known as Paracelsians. These were the kind of the radical doctors of the time. These were the people who actually believed that by taking 
what they called chemicals, what we would call uh, drugs nowadays, could could get you better. Um, this was the new ideas coming from the continent in opposition to the traditional classical view that your body was a seri- had to be sort of held in balance between your humours. And uh, they were both very interesting. So Edward Jordan is fascinating. He probably lived within 50 or 100 yards of Shakespeare. He arrived in the parish when his wife was pregnant. He was exactly the same age as Shakespeare. He was a few weeks younger than him. But the interesting thing about Jordan was that he trained in North Italy, including at Padua. So this was the sort of people who were who were literally walking around in the same streets as, as Shakespeare. But of course, got to be absolutely clear about this. We have naps- There is absolutely no evidence that Shakespeare ever spoke to any of these people. Or, or, um, <laughs> although it, seems, it would seem strange. Uh, interestingly enough, the three doctors' wives are all pregnant at, the, at, at one time, very close together. So they, one must think that at least the doctors talk to each other. There has been a book on one year in Shakespeare's life to bring alive... That's right. Um, J- 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 James Shapiro's book, 1599. And in fact, that was sort of the inspiration for, 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 for this book. Uh, but also Charles Nichols' book, The Lodger. Charles Nichols' book's based on a, on a legal dis- deposition by Shakespeare, which shows that in 1600, probably 1602, 1604, he was living in the western part of the city, actually just near where the Museum of London is. And the interesting thing then is that he was actually living as a lodger in the house of a French Huguenot refugee, which is not, you know, a lot of people think Shakespeare lived in Stratford when he was working, which he obviously, you know, he obviously lived in London. But it's not quite what you imagine of sort of English national poet, that he was living with a, um, what was a, from the deep position, a very, very surly, actually quite unpleasant um, <laughs> Uh, uh, a French uh, uh, refugee who actually made head tires. These were the the elaborate metalwork things that um, uh, women at the time wore in their hair to make their crepes with big hair. So it's it's a sort of there's a web of connections. But I I have to be clear that you you know there's absolutely no evidence that these people ever spoke to. Uh, uh, we're, we're not. We're going to ign- we're going to ignore that. <laughs> <laughs> we think they all, they all spoke to each other like crazy in the local. They would, they would, they would, they would, of course, met at the one place that they would all seen each other was at church because everybody had to go to church. But no one, and, no one has done a sort of deep dive into who Shakespeare might have chatted to. I mean, I love Charlotte's point about where do you get your knowledge about Italy? You, you get it from the bloke living next door. Yeah, well, there's, there's that, and just a, a, a one little story which kind of illustrates it. Living um, in the north wing of the former nunnery, which had been the um, the nuns' dining room, so these these monasteries were chopped up into sort of luxury housing. Was a guy called um, Alderman uh, John Robinson, and um, John Robinson was very very wealthy. When he died in 1600, he left twenty twenty five thousand um, pounds. So that's um, I don't know fifth, sixth, seventh of what the Queen earned in a year. So, you know, he it's was more very, than I'm very... going to leave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> quite. He, he, was, he was a very wealthy um, uh, wool merchant. And if you go into St. Helens, you can still see his wall, the memorial to him carved on the wall with his long-suffering wife, Christian. She had 16 children. So Robinson was very careful to marry all his daughters off to very uh, successful sons of other businessmen. But um, if I can just read you this, this is from his will of 1599, where it states, this is his youngest daughter, my daughter, Elizabeth Robinson, who is of a willful mind, contrary as well to her duty and to the laudable customs of the City of London, have bestowed herself in marriage without my consent. (laughs) In regard of her disobedience, she shall enjoy neither part nor portion of any part of my goods, only in remembrance of my love towards her, her, I give her £10. So this is £10 out of £20,000. So, you know, if 
you know, it's like giving someone a fiver in your will. And the interesting thing was that in, in 1596, she'd run off and married a guy called Thomas Jeffries, who came from Ickenham in West London, who was obviously considered very unsuitable. And clearly, um, Robinson was outraged by this. Now, the interesting thing is, for the listeners who know Midsummer's Night Dream, it's likely that A Midsummer's Night Dream was, was, was written around 1596. And of course, at the start of it, Aegeus comes in and Theseus says to him, you know, what's, you know, you're not very happy. And he says, well, my daughter won't do what, um, my daughter won't do what um, I want. She wants to marry someone else. And you just sort of think, is this um, uh, picking up on this story? I think uh, I think you've nailed it, Jeff. I think you've nailed it. <laughs> I think it's a breakthrough stuff. Now, I want to ask one final question because we could talk about this for hours. But I want you to talk me through, given the breadth of your knowledge, the similarities between William Shakespeare and David Bowie. I think there is a similarity in a way. And I think that those of us who have been brought up on Spinal Tap have this image of rock stars lying around swimming pools, swinging bottles of champagne. But the critical thing about uh, about David was that he was a workaholic. I mean, he just worked and worked and worked. And it's interesting because I think that this was the time when Shakespeare was very highly driven. He was living in a very aspirational area. And um, this was the period when he was clearly making money. Quite how, we're not quite sure, but he bought this house in, um, in Stratford, uh, which uh, cost £60. So, you know, he had to save that money up from somewhere. And Probably most importantly, he was trying to get a coat of arms. I mean, this is done through his father. And that would have designated him a gentleman. But I think this was a time when, you know, he was, you know, he was enjoying being a success in London. And the fact that he was living amongst uh, free-thinking professionals, creatives, a lot of uh, musicians in the parish, but also these very, very successful business people must have had some impact. Otherwise, why did he choose to live there when he could have lived anywhere? And um, But um, I hope people do give the book a chance. It's called Living with Shakespeare. It's published by Edinburgh University Press. Thank you so much, Jeff. That's absolutely fascinating. Pleasure to talk to you. You might not yet have heard of the Vov, that's V-O-V, but you will soon as it's a brand new virtual art ecosystem. It's just launched a 10-week program of exhibitions and live events, and it involves 15 of the UK's leading museums. It includes the Hayward Gallery, the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, the Whitworth, Tate, and Turner Contemporary, among others. The VOV is a result of a collaboration between the Outset Contemporary Art Fund and Visiological. I'm going to leave it to our next guest, Candida Gertler, OBE, to describe Visiological to you, because Candidate is one of the co-directors of Outset, which she established in 2003 as an international independent charity to support innovative art projects that engage the widest possible audiences. Outset has a presence in nine countries. The charity has raised over £13 million worldwide. Candidate is passionately committed to make the fragile art sector stronger and more resilient than ever. And she's here with us today to explain all about the VOV. Good morning, Candida. Good morning, Ed. Candida, good morning. And it's lovely to have you with us to explain all this fabulous innovation to our listeners. Now, what I understand about your collaborator, Visiological, is that it's an art science female-founded collective of practitioners of techno-shamanism, which is a cultural movement aiming to bring human experiences into the often void digital realm and make it all a bit more spiritual. Now, I might not have got that right, but tell us more about your aims and what the VOV is going to do. Good morning, Charlotte. It's wonderful to be here. And I'm delighted to speak about the VOV because I think that's what I've been doing for the last year, day in, day out with great passion. The VOV is really an 
absolute moment where we hope that we can transition the art world to the into the digital era. The digital era being the combination between the physical and the digital. For a very long time, the conversation has started about how do we actually harness fantastic content that is coming out of our public institutions and can bring them to a, a much broader audience, which is always the conversation that is being had. How do we reach wider audiences? How do we actually get something out there that is meaningful to everyone. Art often is still for the others, for those in the know, for those who maybe uh, have been initiated or got a special education. And the other part is that the digital era is allowing for monetization of content. And we have seen this um, in other sectors, such as the film industry or the music industry, where with small subscriptions and small contributions, you could actually be part of this fantastic film world and see films on demand and explore documentaries, the worlds of. And I think what the Vov is really hoping is to give access and also to those who, let's be honest, how many people can actually come to London where I'm at the moment? And what we want is to reach the world. Um, because we believe that art, and I know this might sound maybe soundbitey, but I really believe that art is a right um, and shouldn't be just reserved for the few. So Charlotte and I, we started this podcast, in fact, because obviously during lockdown, people couldn't get to museums or indeed to performances of any kind. And we wanted to highlight what was available online and some of it ranged from the outstanding to some of it was just uh, routine. So I'm very excited by this. I'm not sure I'll ever get my head around what techno-shamanism is, but if we just <laughs> concentrate on the more pragmatic aspect, I know that you've launched some incredible presentations. So, for example, I went to see Andres Gursky's show at the Haywood, and I know that you've done that online and also Lisa Bryce the South African painter at Tate and also Yinka Schonebert obviously that wonderful uh, artist at Yorkshire Sculpture Park so what I want to get from you Kendra is a sort of sense of you know you said you spent a year working on this I mean dragooning 15 albeit willing museums to work with you and then the digital stuff is not it's not just a case of pointing your video camera at something and putting it online. It's got to be much more sophisticated and engaging than that, as you say. So give us a sense of kind of what people will see online, how you've managed to get everyone together to do this and so on. So I think you're absolutely right. At the very beginning, when we thought about it, I was living what I call in a kind of science fiction world. I thought you just have to point the camera and, you know, sort of capture it. And some amazing technician will transform this into what we can then hang into a virtual gallery. Because very often you see very flat renditions and we would never have dared suggest this to these fantastic artists. And so we started the quest of uh, having the conversations parallel with the uh, tech host with all the institutions. And of course, as you can imagine, and as you know, these exhibitions have various layers. There's the artist, there's the curator, and then there's, of course, the renommé and the reputation of the institution. I mean, what's what's so exciting about this is that from right from the beginning of this podcast, you know, we've been looking at ways art galleries and 
so on have been presenting their work and we've been quite disappointed on the whole because as you say you know it does tend to be quite flat and I was interested in 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 the stuff I was reading about what you do you know you do talk about how sort of cold uh, the digital world can be you know really without that sort of connection so we're really keen to know what what how you've done it to make it different. Yeah, so that brings me actually back to one of your questions, the tech shamanism, that um, it's actually not so difficult to get one's head around <laughs> once you really know what it is. It's really bringing a sense of community and a sense of being together in a space that actually physically you can't really reach together. And the way we have hopefully achieved that is, first of all, I think the kind of design of the VOV, it's inviting, it's positive, it has um, a really um, uplifting kind of messaging to it. Um, and it includes uh, those institutions in one place for the first time. And one of the things that I really, really was completely overwhelmed by at the beginning of the pandemic was the amount of invitations and the amount of come and join this webinar and this Zoom call and this, that. And, and I was like actually saying, okay, I'm giving up. I, I don't even know what, what's happening anymore. Um, and I've missed everything. And this idea of, oh, damn it, I really wanted to hear this artist, but now I can't. And maybe there's a recording somewhere, but then, you know, go and find it. And what we wanted is to say, okay, you all come to one platform. You come to one address. That's why we made it quite simple, the VOV. And you, you just start looking there. And I have to say the live events, there have been four so far that I've all seen, gave me a real sense, oh my God, I'm really there with my friends. Um, yesterday, for example, John Gerard gave a talk on NFTs and all of a sudden he pointed out that Lawrence Leck was asking a question. So he said, oh, Lawrence is asking a question. Uh, can we please give priority to this one? Because I really want to know what he wants to know. So all of a sudden I was there in front of a screen, of course, separated physically from the others. But I felt, oh, there's all my mates. And <laughs> vision, you know, the broader vision is, of course, with as technology uh, develops that we can really visit as avatars, maybe. Um, exhibitions and stand next to each other and talk next, you know, to each other while we're experiencing these exhibitions. And I don't think it's so much of the future. I think we're looking at maybe two years or so before these kind of dreams could come true. But it's that community feeling that also tech shamanism is aiming at giving guidance, making you welcome. And we know what it is. The best parties are the ones that are hosted well. Absolutely. Yes. So true. You can have an event where people from all over the world can participate and interact. So it's not just I go online and look at the exhibition online. There's a conversation, there's an interaction. And nobody quite knows yet where this will settle and what the answer is going to be. But people are trying and experimenting and they, they're thinking what hasn't been thought before, which is previously it was take the physical and just put it online. Now it's think about what digital gives you that the physical does not, which is very exciting. 
Totally. And one, one of the experiences I've made also is when Ralph Rugoff gave the talk the live event at the live event on Gursky. I had seen the show at the Hayward. I, it was fantastic to see it again and to have Ralph talk about it again and, and learn new things that I hadn't heard before. Well, normally I buy the catalog or, you know, there's these leaflets that you put at the bottom of your bag and then you find them like five months later. It's <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happens. And, you know, and I, I'm really interested in the arts, as you know. Uh, but I don't really take the time afterwards to sit down and say, okay, now I'm sitting down and reading the essay. And that's what I did for the first time in my life, immediately after the experience, I browsed the collateral content and found myself spending another half an hour at least learning more about the exhibition, about the artist. And we hope that also the VOV will be a, a learning resource. One of the questions that we uh, was asked to Ralph was how was it to hang an exhibition in the digital space? And he said, oh, it was fantastic because normally you have those 150 kilo uh, heavy uh, photographs that four technicians have to lift and hang and then you hang the show and all of a sudden you realize no it doesn't work so there you go you unhang it you have the four technicians for another two days roaming around the gallery until you're satisfied he said in the digital on the vortex platform it was so easy to move everything around to adjust the lighting to do all sorts of things that in the physical are really challenging and time consuming and expensive. And what we think also is that these virtual galleries in the future can become resources for curators to pre-hang, to see how the exhibition might work in a much more accurate way than to build a little model and cut out you know, images and then pin them to this model. And also for artists, can you imagine a young artist who doesn't have the resource to rent a gallery? They can hang their work, invite maybe curators to show their work to them and be in conversations about potential exhibitions. I think there's a huge world out there also for the professionals to use the VOV. And before I go, what's really important, what I haven't mentioned yet is, of course, being outside for us, what's really important is fundraising for institutions. And we all know that through the pandemic, they've all really, really suffered. Mm. Um, at the moment, we are based on a donation model, which we hope to transition to a micro um, subscription model. And really, it would be fantastic if everybody who enjoys what's on the VOV would make a micro donation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you and to whoever's listening. Lovers of Opera will be delighted to hear about Longborough Festival Opera's ingenious wheeze to use a circus tent as its main venue this summer. The festival is based in the North Cotswolds and the big tent is going to allow for a much larger socially distanced audience than the usual theater where it's held. It also means doing opera in the round and in a much less formal way without all the usual sets and costumes. Now this sounds really good fun. So here to tell us all about it is the artistic director, Polly Graham. Hello, Polly. Hello, Ed. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, Polly, it's lovely to have you. Good morning. Now, I've seen pictures of the Big Top and it looks fabulous. And we'll get on to that in a minute. But first, tell our listeners a bit about Longborough Opera Festival itself, because it was started by your parents, Martin and Lizzie, and then you took over in 2018 as artistic director. So tell us all about growing up with the opera. 
Well, really, um, the festival was born from a completely mad dream of my father, who's a very uh, willful and eccentric person. And basically, if people tell him he can't do something, he finds a way of doing it. And he actually had no uh, formal music education, didn't go to university, would very much kind of probably describe himself as someone totally not of the establishment. He was working on a building site from the age of 18, but he loved music. And yeah, so basically then he got together with my mum who loved theatre and then they discovered they loved opera and the rest is kind of history. He converted an agricultural barn into a 500 seat theatre with a very large orchestra pit and we've put on a huge number of different operas, um, but we're mostly known for our presentation of the works of Richard Wagner. And in 2013, we did our first ring cycle and we're now partway through our second ring cycle, which is very exciting. And it's the kind of thing that everyone's like, well, don't even try but of course we are. Let's get back to the tent and what operas we're going to see. You've talked about Wagner and also have your parents stepped back and allowed you to take charge or are they backseat driving? Uh, No, they're not really backseat drivers. They're great. I mean, basically, because I was totally immersed in opera making from the age of five, I guess it wasn't much of a surprise that I ended up having a career myself in in the arts. Sometimes, actually, my mum can be a little bit cautious. She's like, I don't know if people will want to come and see that. But (laughs) basically, yeah, like they let me make the choices. And so in the big top, we've got three new productions. Così Fantute, which is a very well known piece by Mozart but actually I don't know whether your listeners will realize this the title is a really horrible sexist title it means in Italian roughly that's what women do (laughs) and um, we've commissioned I've commissioned a new translation of the uh, piece by an amazing translator called Amanda Holden not the Amanda Holden you know on TV, um, but a different one. Anyway, and she's translated the opera as Women Are Human. So that's the English title, which is totally empowering and fabulous and a great riposte to De Ponte and Mozart. And then we've also got a piece by Monteverdi, which is one of the earliest operas that was ever written, called The Return of Ulysses, which is all about uh, the story of basically the story of Homer's Odyssey. Finally, we're doing um, probably one of the greatest pieces that was written in the 20th century, The Cunning Little Vixen by Janacek. And it's actually a piece that was based on a cartoon strip in in a Czech newspaper. And Janacek found his cook laughing over this cartoon in the newspaper and he grabbed it and he turned that into this incredible 90 minutes of satire, comedy, tragedy. And it's a, it's a pie end to nature so it's rather lovely to be doing that in a field in Gloucestershire. What I love about opera is not sitting in the Royal Opera House but when it's kind of informal and people feel sort of relaxed which is it sounds like your opera festival is. We always want to reach new audiences and we uh, to anyone who says opera is not for, for me I would just say come and give it a go because actually the whole point about opera is that it's the summation of every single Um, aspect of human expression. I guess with The Big Top, that was something that appealed to me is the whole spirit of The Big Top is informal in a way and is theatrical. And I'm very keen to promote those aspects of, of what we do. 
Oh, it sounds fantastic. So just for our listeners, tell us when it's all going to kick off. It all kicks off from the 1st of June. Actually, that's our biggest show. And that show is happening inside the theatre. So that's a concert performance of Die Valkyra. And then the Big Top will open for performances on the 23rd of June. Thank you so much for coming on, Polly. Thank you. My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you both. That's all we've got time for today. But don't forget to check out our weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter. Plus... Out today is the new May Great British Brands newsletter. It's got our pick of all the upcoming summer cultural events to book into. So just add slash newsletter to the end of our web address, which, as you'll all probably know by now, is countryandtownhouse.co.uk. You'll also find our other podcasts on the website, the Great British Brands podcast, of course, hosted by Michael Heyman of Changemakers and Houseguest, the Houseguest podcast about interior design. This week, Carol Annette talks to Benjamin Frovine, the president of Schumacher Fabrics, who foresees a return to the golden age of decoration. Yes, well, I think our prime minister is well on his way to that, don't you, Ed? (laughs) You might say that. I couldn't possibly comment. Thanks again to all our listeners, especially those who stuck with us for the last 45 episodes. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Miller's Gin. Charlotte and I are now off for a summer full tipple. Their website again, martinmillersgin.com. See you next week.